America is a delightful country in which to carry out espionage. As a country, it is rather ingenious about keeping its secrets. One of the weakest links is the nation in the nation's security is the yearning friendliness of her people. They crave public attention. They crave public recognition. I was able to find one American after another who seemed impelled, after a drink or two, to tell me things he might never have told his own wife. This is Retrace. It's September 9th, 2020. We're talking about Alan Dulles's The Craft of Intelligence, Chapter 15. This is our second installment. And we're going to do it in three parts from here. So this is this is the first of three looks closely at the chapter itself. Our previous segment was more of a preparation. So we can break up chapter 15 into three categories. The three categories are these. They're all they're all kinds of problems. So First, there are problems of information. Then there are problems of trust. And finally, problems of survival. Now, these aren't Dulles's organization. He, he does maintain a sort of thread um, of, of organization throughout, but it's, it, he doesn't break up the chapter. And so, a reader might... Um, might find it hard to follow, or if not hard to follow, at least hard to reconcile and consolidate after the fact. So this organization into these three kinds of problems, problems of information, trust, and survival, uh, that that's not in the book. But everything else we're about to talk about is. So problems of information, we might also call them uh, problems of openness, um, the sort of desire that we all have to tell things, and the desire to be told things. The desire to tell things roughly corresponds to Dulles's category of careless leaks. He has four categories of the kinds of problems that he is trying to solve or at least address in, uh, in chapter 15. Chapter 15, by the way, is titled Security in a Free Society. The book, The Craft of Intelligence, is, well, you know, the subtitle of this edition and, and perhaps every edition, uh, that I'm, the edition that I'm holding, Americans, uh, America's Legendary Spy Master on the Foundations of Intelligence Gathering for a Free World. If you want to know more about the book, go back to our previous segment because there's, there's quite a bit of backstory or backstories. Um, so, in chapter 15, he, he uh, identifies four, what he calls, important areas to be considered. And, and we've just named one of them, what he calls careless leaks. It falls under the problem, what we might call the problem of information. So, we, we have this, people tend to have a desire to tell things, that roughly corresponds to what we're going to hear about what he calls careless leaks. And we also have a desire to be told things, and that roughly corresponds to what he terms giveaways. But we'll get more into that in a second. The second kind of problem, the second of the, the three kinds of problems identified in... Well, let, let's be clear. He identifies four problems. This is confusing. Uh, I, I understand. He identifies four kinds of uh, problems to be considered. Uh, he calls them uh, the giveaway, contrived leaks, careless leaks, and um, uh, finally, betrayals or, or the problem of trustworthiness. However, an alternative way of organizing the chapter, which has much more in it than just uh, commentary on those four problems, an alternative way of organizing the chapter is what we're going to follow, which is problems of information, 
problems of trust and problems of survival, those three, information, trust, and survival. So, talking about information roughly corresponds to his careless leaks and his giveaways. Talking about problems of trust, which we're going to talk about tomorrow, uh, roughly corresponds to his contrived leaks and his betrayals. Problems of trust are can be thought of as vulnerability to attacks, and they can be attacks by friends in the case of what he calls contrived leaks, or they can be attacked by foes in the case of betrayal. Foes can be former friends. Friends can be former foes. The last category, problems of survival, um, sprouts forward from the first two. It's, it, it's sort of, it's either a, a reaction to or um, an outgrowth of the first two kinds of problems. Problems of information and problems of trust. So problems of survival are about uh, preventing our own destruction. And um, we have basically two, two directions from which this destruction can come. We can be destroyed by our enemies. And um, we can think of enemies as those who would exploit information, problems of information or problems of trust, exploit those uh, at our expense to their own benefit and to our own, um, at, our, at our expense. And the other direction from which destruction might come is from ourselves or from within the group that we, of which we consider ourselves a part. So, there we're talking about people who would do anything to solve the problems of trust and the problems of information. They would do too much. They would basically destroy us or destroy what we care about, destroy what makes us us in order to solve information and trust problems. We talked a little bit about James Angleton, the longtime chief of counterintelligence under Dulles, and that's the sort of person you should be, or, or that's the sort of um, life story or, or professional story that you should imagine when you think of problems of survival and, and in particular preventing our own dis- pre- preventing our destruction our destruction our own destruction by um, ourselves as opposed to by our enemies so let's talk about problems of information and in particular Dulles's terms careless leaks and giveaways so we want to give valuable information generally all of us we could we could say this is a description of everyone we want to give valuable information because it makes us look good uh, it makes us look like we're in the know or that we're smart and because it sometimes uh, can further our ends or help us achieve our goals or it sometimes seems to do that even if we're not sure if it does and it especially might further our ends our goals if we put a little topspin on the information or, or select it carefully or without the intention of fairly representing the information, but instead of doing something with it, something, say, strategic. So that's why we want to give information, valuable information. Uh, we want to get valuable information because, um, well, once we have it, we can give it. So that satisfies the first urge. Um, and also because it might further our ends or help us achieve goals. Uh, and also because we know intuitively, instinctively, that we're at a disadvantage compared to others when they have valuable information that we don't. We don't even have to know what the information is or what the nature of the advantage or disadvantage is to know that, to sense that problem. It's instinctive. And so we're talking about strategic intelligence, what, we, what we're terming strategic intelligence, or what we might call espionage, counter-espionage, covert action. And so we're talking about spies. Spies try to get information from others, and um, they try to hide information from 
an, uh, a still other group. Our spies try to get information from whomever we call others, and they try to hide our information from those others. Getting the information is espionage. Hiding it or or protecting it is counter-espionage, and, counter, uh, and covert action is more complicated than, than can be said briefly. Others spies, other persons or groups or groups large and small, uh, their spies try to do the same thing. They try to get our information, particularly our secrets. And I, uh, by the way, as we discussed in the last segment, who is we and who is our, we, we cannot take that for granted, and I don't take it for granted in this uh, explanation, but for the purposes of explanation. Our spies try to do the same thing. Uh, other spies try to do the same thing as our spies do, and that means trying to get our secrets in particular and trying to protect their own from us. And they do covert action in service of those two goals, presumably. They might do covert action in service of goals that are not those two, but now we're, we're at risk of digressing. The question always recurs, who are our spies and who are the other's spies? The um, opening quote was from Dulles' chapter 15, but he's actually, page 237, he's actually quoting uh, a spy, a defector, Paul Manat, a Polish intelligence officer. Um, he was trained by communists, and he defected to the West in 1959, and he later wrote a book. And that's, that's what you heard at the top of the segment. Dulles quoting Manat in his book, Spy in the U.S., published in 1961, Harper and Well, what about that spy? The New York Times has an article from um, November 22nd, 1959, by Rosenthal. It's a front page story. On the jump page, he goes into more detail and there are some interesting little tidbits here that help us fill out the, the picture. Rosenthal says this, In Poland, there is a variety of forms of intelligence. Army espionage, which goes by the usual euphemism of counterintelligence, political intelligence work under the party, and internal anti-subversion intelligence under the Ministry of Internal Affairs. Polls say that Colonel Manat, this is the defector, had access to political as well as military intelligence and had roles in both fields. And he goes on, In any case, the assumption in Warsaw, true or not, is that Colonel Manat knew whatever was to be known. The colonel left Warsaw in midsummer. He was bound on a vacation, to, uh, on a vacation trip to Yugoslavia. He stopped off in Vienna and disappeared with his family. It is reported in Warsaw that in Vienna, he turned himself over to the United States authorities. No information is available as to what happened after that. And Rosenthal adds this note. This reporter learned, meaning Rosenthal himself, this reporter learned of the Monat story a couple of months ago. He's writing in November. November. The, the late November. 1959. A couple of months ago, to have written it in Poland would have meant immediate expulsion and possibly arrest. And his byline is, he's in Vienna when he publishes this. There was also the possibility, which has to be considered by Western newsmen working in, the com in a communist country, that a secret already known to the West was dropped into a, counter into a correspondent's ear by a communist contact as a provocation to find out whether he knew about it or to entice him into using it while still within the territory of the communist state and subject to reprisals for espionage. Dulles doesn't talk at all about this report, although he undoubtedly read it or <laughs> and knew the facts of the case before he read it. Um, but it is 
revealing to hear what it's like on the ground during the Cold War at the moment of a defector, a, a, a defecting spy. So let's talk about careless leaks. We're talking about Dulles's Craft of Intelligence, Chapter 15, Security in a Free Society. And in particular, Problems of Information. Dulles talks about careless leaks. So, on uh, page 241, I'm sorry, yeah, 241, page, uh, paragraph 23. The careless, uh, this is what Dulles says about careless leaks. The careless leak, uh, one not due to malice or plan, may be the result of something, of someone talking thoughtlessly out of turn, perhaps encouraged by an astute reporter. This, um, and he continues, by questioning enough people, the latter, the reporter, is often able to put together the true story of highly classified developments or programs in the making. All this is hard to deal with because reporters who are directly or indirectly the beneficiaries of such leaks refuse to disclose the sources, and it becomes almost impossible to obtain conclusive evidence as to who the guilty party or parties may be. It's um, reporters come up again and again. The press comes up again and again in chapter fifteen. We'll come back to it, but it's worth noting that uh, talking to reporters is well. I mean, how often, as a newsreader, are you enamored of <laughs> the, you know the great reporters out there who get impossible stories or apparently impossible stories? Well, from from. Alan Dulles's point of view, as as written in this book, we don't know if it's his real point of view, or we don't know his motives. We can't read his mind; we can only read his words. Um, it looks very different. It's almost a negative image. There's uh, a, Alan Dulles found a letter and a memorandum in his attic, I think. Um, and he writes about it. It's a letter. It's a letter with a memorandum attached from Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson, to William Jennings Bryan, who was the Secretary of State, and he was the predecessor to um, Robert Lansing as Secretary of State. And Robert Lansing is Dulles's uncle, just perchance. And the letter and memorandum are about suggestions for safeguarding the more important diplomatic proceedings. This is what Woodrow Wilson said to Jennings Bryan in the memorandum. This is in the wake of uh, of, of an intelligence breach of some sort. This is what Wilson says. One per- this is his proposal for um, safeguarding the more important diplomatic proceedings. One person to draft all dispatch- dispatches, which it is thought wise to keep safe from publication one in the same stenographer to transcribe all such dispatches and their ciphered or uh, deciphered versions. And this is, he's writing in 1915. And one in the same official to do all the enciphering and deciphering of such dispatches. No flimsies. I don't know what a flimsy is, but I think it's something like some sort of carbon copy. Um, No flimsies of such dispatches. Only one or two copies a copy of the most important dispatches to be sent to the president to be returned for file always. This is the key paragraph. In brief, a single, clearly defined inner circle to handle these matters always, without variation of method or personnel, with the most carefully guarded exclusiveness, so that it may always be possible to fix the, corris- fix the responsibility for a leak definitely and at once. The only person outside this circle allowed even to handle such dispatches nominated to be the head of the index bureau. The dispatches sent to the president to be sent always in sealed envelopes to the White House, never to the executive offices, where it is impossible to prevent their passing through several hands. So the purpose of this uh, proposal from, from Wilson 
is to start handling sensitive information in a way that makes it always possible to fix the responsibility for a leak, definitely, and at, and at once. It's, it's sort of an alternative way of thinking about the problem to what we normally hear or normally think about, if we think about it at all, which is we protect information in, in the modern era by encryption um, and in the past and in the modern era by compartmentalization and all the other different ways of not spreading or copying the information. But this is a different sort of attack. This is sort of, um, uh, this is uh, a sort of a disincentive um, in, in prisons it's, or, or in, in, the, in the justice system it's called what? I'm drawing a blank on the term, but um, you know, discouraging crime by by making the, the penalty severe and, and obvious and, and assured. There's a, a sort of edge case in Dulles's careless leaks concept. It's hard to know where to place this, but it, it, we can call it the guessing reporter, and it's probably something that most of us never think about. Usually when a reporter writes a story, sources anonymous, you assume that they can't reveal their sources because of an agreement with those sources. Um, but there's another case, an edge case, that Dulles mentions. He says, There are times, of course, when sources are not given because the writers would have some difficulty in producing them, even if they were so minded, as their stories might have been the product of their own intelligence guesswork. In the case of able reporters, these guesses often hit quite close to the mark. I, you, there's no way for us to know without some sort of truth serum uh, broadly administered um, how many times <laughs> big stories have been broken by reporters who claimed to have sources but didn't, but guessed right, guessed correctly, and, and, and perhaps knew to a... Uh, a moral certainty, the the truth of what they were reporting, were reporting, but they couldn't find a source. Nowadays, anonymous sources are, I mean, it, you know, in 2020, 2020, when we're recording this, anonymous sources are scandalous. But um, depending on the information being reported, you might feel one way or another about their merit, but this uh, this case of the guessing reporter is worth considering. I mean, in that case, the reporter is the source. The reporter is an intelligence agent. And really, that is... It does make sense to think of reporters, um, earnest and, and, and forthright and upright reporters, as intelligence agents working for the public... It depends on what country you're in. depends on what particular reporter or news source or organization you're talking about. But what are they if they're not intelligence agents? What, what is a newspaper or a, a, news, a television news network or channel if not some sort of intelligence organization? You know, loosely defined, an intelligence organization would include a news company. And we imagine the, the the resources at the disposal of a of a of a private company will always be will always pale in comparison to um, to, to most state sponsored intelligence organizations. And really, they're not I mean, states, large states, Western states especially, or or the, the biggest nation states in the world. They don't have an intelligence organization. They have an intelligence community of organizations, and they have tax money or the equivalent in whatever country and so there's um, there are much deeper pockets to do whatever intelligence work the organization wants to do but in principle aren't they doing the same thing that at least a private news organization purports to do which is intelligence work so much for careless leaks in the domain of problems of information when we're talking about 
security in a free society. The other category that Dulles gives us is giveaways, what he calls giveaways. Giveaways are common in the United States, by his definition, and not in other countries. He says, he, he, can, he defines giveaways as what is published with official approval, whereas uh, careless leaks are um, based on the problem that we talk too much and we like to show that we are in the know or smart or whatever. Those definitions are on page 236. So going back to Manat, the spy, the, the defector, the Polish intelligence defector in 1959, uh, Dulles says this about him. But it was obviously in published form that Manat found his most precious sources. Americans, he says, are not only careless and loquacious in their speech, they also give away far more than is good for them in public print. And... Uh, further recounting uh, Manad's book, Spy in the U.S., Dulles says that um, in, in Manad's view, the house organs, print publications of branches of the, U, uh, of the U.S. military, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, fight the battle of inter-service rivalry in print. And that's Dulles quoting Manad. And that each branch further publishes a stream of manuals and reports. Dulles says these are giveaways, or we're handing information to the enemy, information that they would pay good money to get if they couldn't get it for free. There's a difficult question that arises in trying to understand, trying to decide whether or not giveaways. So far, we've only heard about. You heard about them generally and heard about the U.S. military giveaways in particular. Um, trying to figure out whether giveaways are a good thing or a bad thing. So, in the case of the U.S. military's uh, battle of inter-service rivalry, um, is the, I mean, we're talking about competition, and competition is often a, a good thing. Is it net good or net bad? This, uh, this competition in print. How would we know? And how would we know? How how would you? How could you possibly know? You can't run an experiment where you have two United States in the fifties, or any time, or any country, two of them, and one. They each have multiple branches of the military, and then they, in one of the cases, in, in one of the the you know in the control they publish. Uh, competitively, and they, they, they fight the battle of inter-service rivalry in print, and in the other they don't, or in some you know radically pared-down degree, they don't. You can't run that experiment. There are many, there are infinite experiments like that that you can't run, and so you can't know. And so we're reliant on our own judgment, or in the case of reading Alan Dulles' Craft of Intelligence, reliant on his judgment. But, as we've already discussed in the previous segment, we're not just reliant on his judgment. We don't know if we're even getting his judgment. I mean, it's always, we can question everything and, and become paralyzed, uh, or we can not do that and, and avoid paralysis, but we can't, we at least can't forget that he might not be telling us the truth, or he might be telling us the truth selectively. He might not have the goals he says he has. I mean, we heard some pretty sordid claims about Alan Dulles in previous segments. Um, or he might have those goals but have a different idea about how to achieve them and, and be using us as his readers to further those, further his ends, help him achieve or help, help, help his us, whatever he means when he says we and us and our, help that group achieve their goals. How would you know? 
going back to Manat, the Polish intelligence officer who defected in 59, he says this, It must be extremely difficult for the U.S. military to try to defend the nation and its freedoms when the very sinews of its defenses are being exposed day by day to anybody who can read. And again, how would we know? Yes, of course, life is difficult. Everything's difficult. It's hard to defend the United States in the 50s when so much information is being published. But is it harder to defend the United States in the 50s if so much information isn't being published? We don't know. We will never know. Ask the same question about the same country in, this, in the year we're speaking now, 2020, or 2030, or whenever you're listening to this, dear listener. There's no way to know. And to, to, to feel like you know, that's perfectly normal. That seems to be a human strength or weakness. It's not obvious in any given case. It definitely feels like you know when you pass judgment on a question like that. But you don't. And strictly speaking, you can't. This is a, what we might call a philosophical problem. Dulles talks, uh, we're talking about giveaways, giveaways of information. Dulles talks about the author uh, Douglas Cater, who wrote The Fourth Branch of Government. And I'm not quoting from that, Dulles is quoting from that. But uh, that was published in 59, the year of the defection, of, of, the, of the Manat defection. Um, Dulles says that, uh, he's quoting Cater, Douglas Cater, uh, President Truman once claimed, this is, we're, we're going to, this, things get complicated here. President Truman once claimed that 95% of our secret information, uh, President Truman once claimed that 95% of our secret information has been published by newspapers and slick magazines. That's Dulles' giveaway. Okay, 95%. Does that sound familiar? We're three segments into this. 95%. That's the same number that Major Murphy used when talking to Jacques Vallée about whether or not UFOs are a scientific or an intelligence problem. I'll just read the quote again. This is Major Murphy, which is not his real name, as quoted by Jacques Vallée in Messengers of Deception. He says, suppose I gave you, and he's, he's talking as an intelligence officer to a scientist, suppose I gave you, a scientist, 95% of the data concerning a phenomenon. You're happy because you know 95% of the phenomenon. Not so in intelligence. If I get 95% of the data, I know this is the cheap part of the information. I still need the other 5%, but I will have to pay a much higher price to get it. Hitler had 95% of the information about the landing in Normandy, but he had the wrong 95%. How does this quote from Truman look or sound in light of that comment from Major Murphy? 95% of our secret information has been published by newspapers and slick magazines, and Dulles is complaining we're publishing too much, there's too much out there. Well, presumably Dulles wouldn't be complaining if, you know, we don't know what he knows, but if what he knows says that within that 95% is some of the expensive information. He talks about, more than once in chapter 15, about how you know, our enemies might pay millions to get what we're giving away for free. And it's, of course, a fair point. Dulles goes on talking about uh, Cater's The Fourth Branch of Government. He says, Cater also refers to a statement by Secretary of Defense Charles Wilson, in which Wilson estimated that this country was giving away military secrets to the Soviets that would be worth hundreds of millions of dollars if we could learn the same type from them. And later he quotes uh, 
Representative George Mahone, who says, um, Officials in Moscow, Peking, and Havana must applaud our stupidity in announcing publicly facts which they would gladly spend huge sums of money endeavoring to obtain. The price of information. So, um, Director of Central Intelligence, uh, Bettel Smith, what is his first name? I think it's Richard. Walter. Not Richard Helms is the Richard I was thinking of. Uh, Walter Battle Smith, and I think they called him Beetle. Maybe it's Beetle. Yeah, it's Beetle. Uh, Beetle Smith um, was so. Dis- this is Dulles now uh, talking about what. what let's, let's call this the Smith test. This is an interesting little anecdote, if it's true, and presumably most of it is, if not all of it. Um, Beetle Smith, uh, Beetle Smith was so disturbed by the situation, meaning the the, the giveaway situation, um, that he decided to make a test. In 1951, he enlisted the services. Uh, Beetle Smith, I think, was uh, was the first director of Central Intelligence. He was not a civilian, so when you talk about Alan Dulles, you talk about the first civilian director of CIA, and and he was in there not quite a decade, but close to it. Beetle Smith was. Um, was a military man. In 1951, he enlisted the services of a group of able and qualified academicians from one of our large universities for some summer work. He furnished them publications, news articles, hearings of the Congress, government releases, monographs, speeches, all available to anyone for the asking. He then commissioned them to determine what kind of an estimate of U.S. military capabilities the Soviets could put together from these unclassified sources. In the intelligence world, this is, called, this is now called OSINT, Open Source Intelligence, and sort of an unnecessary abbreviation when we're talking about it from the outside. But on the inside, from what I understand from my reading, they call it OSINT. Um, what, what could the Soviets put together from these unclassified sources? Their conclusions indicated that in a few weeks of work, by a task force on this, uh, in a few weeks, weeks of work by a task force on this open literature, our opponents could acquire important insights, important insight into many sectors of our national defense. Okay, important insight. Okay, that's pretty vague. He goes on. The fact, in fact, when the findings of the university, an- this is the best part, in, when the findings of the university analysts were circulated to President Truman and to other policymakers at the highest level, they were deemed to be so accurate that the extra copies were ordered destroyed and the few copies that were retained were given a high classification. What is the price of information in that story? Let's assume that it's completely true and not misrepresented at all. I mean, you can imagine, you, you get, we're talking about espionage, strategic, what we prefer to call strategic intelligence, but espionage, counter-espionage. You get paranoid or, or you, you, you learn to think like a paranoid person if you're not actually subject to any events that, that anyone in the intelligence world would care about. But you learn to think like a paranoid person when, when you think about strategic intelligence. Well, you could easily, you know, Beetle Smith could easily concoct this story. Um, now, we, we have, you know, maybe the public, uh, the university, he doesn't name the university, but he says um, one of our large universities, um, Dulles says that. You could make this whole thing up. You could make it up. So we have to at least say, assuming it's true. We could do more legwork, but again, that's the price of information. We at Retrace haven't done more legwork on this particular story, so we can only speak to what's what Dulles writes, not what he thinks. We don't know what he thinks. Speak to what he writes. Um, but you could imagine the whole thing being made up. But assuming it's true, this idea that they put a bunch of academics on the case, reading open source material curated by the intelligence community, the intelligence community in 1951 in the United States, which is nothing compared to what it is now or even what it became 10 years later at the, at the end of Dulles's tenure. Um, but open source information curated, that's the first price, curating the information. They didn't, so he says they handed them uh, publications, news articles, hearings of the Congress, government releases, monographs, speeches, 
Well, if the if the U.S. intelligence community is handing these materials to these academics, um, of course there's you know a saturated there's a saturation of bias potential in that. They know what <laughs> what uh, I mean what they know to look for in their own country's open source intelligence is not necessarily what the Soviets or, or any opponent might know to look for. But still, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But that's the first price. We can't put a dollar figure on it, but those those people working for Beetle Smith didn't, <laughs> didn't hand these academics Vogue or whatever the equivalent of Vogue was back then. They handed them other things to see what they could do with it. I mean, it's a, you know, it's an experiment. Let's give them, let's give them the best possible open source intelligence and see what they can figure out that's not written in there. And then they go on, according to the story, they go on to figure out quite a bit. So much that, according to the story, the result, the the um, the extra copies of the report or reports were destroyed, and the remaining copies were classified. So it took the curation from the intelligence community, and then it took the legwork of the academic community. Those were the two prices on that information that was supposedly so valuable that it needed to be either destroyed or put under lock and key. We'll call that the Beetlesmith test. What can you actually do with open source intelligence? Or what Dulles calls giveaways in, in the world, in the problem, in what we're calling problems of information. So, Dulles continues by asking and trying to answer this question. Is there any way to stop the giveaway? He says, one large and important sector of this problem is within the control of the government and the Congress, that is, what the executive and legislative branches of government publish or allow to be published, including particularly the publication of congressional hearings and investigations. In 2020, it is not at all unusual to tune into C-SPAN and see congressional hearings or the activities of committees. Certainly not unusual to 2019 and 2020 to see uh, to see televised the ongoing ongoings of investigations, and we can we can assume that Dulles imagined a world where these things were not nearly so easy for the public to consume. And do you consume them? I mean, if you know about, let's say, impeachment hearings, you you're, you hear the news every day or see the news every day during such an event, which lasts many days. Are you watching the hearings? I mean, you've got to have a lot of free time to do that. Or a lot of patience. I mean, both, really. You're not. You're listening to what? Those organizations that we didn't realize or we don't tend to think of as being intelligence organizations, news sources, news outlets. There are publicly funded news. I mean, they're they're all private. Even the publicly funded ones are only partially publicly funded. NPR, for example. Now, News is a loose term. There are, you know, the government printing office will hand you piles and piles and piles of completely publicly funded news, in quotes. But most people don't go to the GPO's website or to a government website at all for their news. And if they do, I mean, what did I just say? A government website. Doesn't that have sinister connotations if you're at all suspicious of your sources? What's the government telling us? Well, according to Dulles and according to the, the private news organizations who, and, 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 you know, the weather service who rely heavily on government entities for their information, governments tell us the vast majority of what our particular government tells us is true. Now, we're not factoring in Major Murphy's concept of the price of information. We might be getting the 95%, the 95% of the weather <laughs> that's cheap, and the 5% that's expensive uh, is, is out of reach 
for the for for the you know the outsider. I don't even know what that would mean. I mean, what what's the five percent of of weather that's important and secret? But in general, our government and the you know we're based in the United States. Western governments in general, the five eyes, perhaps, as generally speaking, publish a whole lot of information and the vast majority of it is true. But we don't think of them as intelligence organizations as a whole. They have intelligence organizations. They have intelligence communities within them. And we don't think of the news organizations that sift through all that publicly available information and try and find the parts or the, the pieces of it that are going to entice you to become customers or to tune in and, and have your attention sold to advertisers. In one sense or another, both of these public, both of these you know, vague groups, public and private, are intelligence organizations. And like the you know, like the familiar intelligence organizations, the CIA, the NSA, the you know. The, NR, the, the Naval Research, NRO, and there are so many acronyms and yet I can only come up with two. Um, <laughs> questions about motives abound about an intelligence organization. I guess the easy thing to forget is that there are many more intelligence organizations. We haven't even talked about the, the private intelligence organizations that don't offer themselves up to the general public, that aren't on your cable news menu or your or you, you know, on the list of websites with which you're familiar there are Booz Allen Hamilton you know how much time do you spend interacting with that entity is there a way to stop the giveaway Dulles is asking so he goes on to say this. I, of course, recognize that in connection with appropriations and other legislation, particularly our defense budget, committees of the Congress need to receive a substantial amount of classified information from the executive. Does it necessarily follow that this must be published in great detail? It is often the intimate and technical details that are the most valuable to the potential enemy and of little interest to the public. I question whether with respect to these technical details, there is a public need to know. He continues. A more difficult area is that of the press, periodicals, and, particular, uh, and particularly service and technical journals. Undoubtedly, it is of the greatest importance in this nuclear missile age to keep the American people informed about our general military position in the world in ample detail. But what we don't really require is detailed information as to where every hardened missile site is located, exactly how many bombers or fighters will be have, uh, will we have, we will have, or the details of their performance. That line, where do you draw that line between what we'll call, you know, the information of value to the general public and, and, the, and the intimate and technical details that are of great value and interest to our potential enemies and of little interest to the public? How would you draw that line? And how would you know if you're drawing it in the wrong place? It's, it's, a, it's a perpetual judgment call on the part of whomever or whichever groups are in a position to make any change to where that line is drawn. So much for problems of information in Dulles's chapter 15. We've talked about the three kinds of problems that he identifies or that we identify through him problems of information problems of trust problems of survival and we've talked today in detail about problems of information they include Dulles's terms uh, careless leaks which is for example saying too much or answering dangerous questions from a reporter or a spy that you don't know is 
in the case of a reporter asking you a significant question or from a spy, you don't, you don't know you're talking to a spy. Those are careless leaks. And then giveaways, examples are the publishing of superfluous details by public and private entities and the openness of government hearings and investigations. Problems of information ultimately rest on our senses of what makes information valuable. And those senses are subjective, at least. Objective, perhaps. How would you define objectively valuable information? It's not easy to imagine. Giving information can feel good, and it can be good for us. And we have to get it in order to give it, and we have to get it to stay ahead of others. The question is, when does the quantity or quality of the information, however told, cause or risk causing a net loss of what's good for us? How would you run the experiment? What would the experiment be? It's almost impossible to imagine. It's not impossible to imagine. It's just impossible to imagine running one or imagine an experiment that you could run. We'll touch on one last tiny point that will come up when we turn to artificial intelligence in particular. Technology in general, but artificial intelligence in particular. Uh, Nick Bostrom has written a paper about what he calls information hazards. These are risks that arise from the dissemination or the potential dissemination of true information that may cause harm or enable some agent to cause harm. Information hazards. If you're at all familiar with the various concerns and debates around artificial intelligence, both present and future, you might be familiar with Nick Bostrom and you less likely but still might be familiar with his paper, Information Hazards, a Topology of Potential Harms from Knowledge. We'll almost certainly come back to that. This has been uh, Retrace segment number three. Next, we're going to deal with problems of trust in Dulles's chapter 15 on security in a free society. And in particular, his concepts of contrived leaks and betrayals. References for this show are all in the RSS feed podcast show notes. The full notes are on our website, retrace.com, R-E-T-R-A-I-C-E.com. This is segment number three.